Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake, to every human, uh, sorry, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. But it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, they should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As usual, always good to keep that open. Uh, Make sure you know where we're going. Uh, You'll see there's a really detailed sermon outline again. Uh, Let me tell you, I will tell you what the points are. You can write them in um, and, um, yeah, we'll make it up as we go along. What gets in the way of you doing what is right? What gets in the way of you doing what is right? Last week at church here, we were looking at the passage just before the one that Lockie just read for us. Uh, And we were looking at uh, the idea that we have an identity from God, that he has made us through our faith in Jesus Christ into, verse 9, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's given us an identity and that identity flows out in a behaviour. We are to be living, as Lockie read for us, verse 12, such good lives among the pagans, among those who don't believe, that they see us and eventually they give praise. So for Christians, it's an important question. What gets in the way of us doing what is good? But even if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm sure that's a question that maybe you you wrestle with a bit. What gets in the way of you doing what is the right thing? I'd like to suggest that the big thing that blocks us, the big thing that undermines our efforts, is actually fear. 
especially when you are in a situation where you lack power, you lack control. Uh, I grew up in the 1980s, 70s, I was a 70s baby, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, uh, and uh, for those of you who were alive and well in that time and paying attention, there was always the threat of nuclear war, wasn't there? The Cold War was going on, and the Russians and the Americans, and they've got all their nuclear missiles, and they're going to blow everyone up, and people like Sting were uh, singing that he hoped that the Russians loved their children too, and all this kind of stuff. Some of you will resonate with this. But there was a sense of fear that went through the population. Some people built little bunkers in their backyard, uh, but most people just got on with things. But just thinking, well, what can we actually do about this? What difference can we make? This fear actually dominated our culture. We get in a situation when we're presented with something that we're afraid of. It's the whole fight or flight thing, isn't it? where we've got to run away or we've got to actually attack the thing that's getting between us. I'd like to add another one in. A fight or attack, flight, avoid or assimilate, join in. But for any of these three things to happen, we are going to give up the calling that God has given us, the command that he's given us. So is there a way? that we can actually deal with this fear, particularly when we as Christians are on the minority and we are increasingly a somewhat disliked minority uh, by some sections of our community. How can we find what is necessary that we can live such good lives among those who don't believe? Now, I worked hard and I've gone back to the alliteration. I've got E's for you this morning. So uh, we've got four of them. The enemy, the example, the empowerment and the environment. The tricky thing is, is this is one sermon that's going to happen over two Sundays. And so point four is actually going to come in next week. So you have to come back and we're going to deal with points one, two and three this week as we unpack it. So we're going to talk now about the enemy. When you're feeling threatened, when you're feeling afraid, it's very natural, isn't it, to actually identify the person, the thing, the society thing that's out there as the enemy, isn't it? Okay, someone has got you on the back foot and they are the enemy. Peter knew this. Peter was there at a time where Christians were increasingly copying opposition, copying bad press. It hadn't yet mounted up that there was widespread persecution across the empire, but it was starting to happen. And so when we looked at last week, the Emperor Nero wanted to blame someone for the fire in Rome. He picked the Christians because no one was going to really care if someone kicked the living daylights out of the church because they didn't like Christians. Everyone seemed to know it was a bit of a sham, but who cares? Let's just blame them anyway. Who is the enemy? Is it the society that's out there that's making us afraid? Peter tells us something different. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day that he visits us. Where's the enemy? It's not out there, is it? 
Peter says, what is waging war against us? It's the things that are in here. It's the evil desires. It's the sinful desires that we have here in verse 11. Now, when we think of sinful desires, literally what Peter has written here is the desires of the flesh. Okay, and that probably conjures up all sorts of unhelpful images for you. So stop it. Okay, get your mind back in church. Okay, but when we think of sinful desires of the flesh, we tend to think of sexual immorality. But can I say, you're just scratching the surface. It's a much bigger picture. We were introduced to a word back in chapter one, and it was this word. Again, if you don't like nerdy sort of technical stuff, just ignore this. But the word was epithumia. And this is the word that Peter has got here again. These desires, these loves. And he's saying the problem that you face when you deal with fear is not the thing that is making you afraid. It's actually what is happening in your heart. And here Peter links this idea of desire or love with the flesh. So we want to dig into this. We want to explore this so we can actually understand what Peter is warning us against. Now in the Bible, you have uh, this category, particularly in the letters of Paul, uh, but you also find it in Peter and some of the others, this category of the flesh. Now, when you read the flesh, it could just mean, you know, this physical body, but it generally means uh, sinful humanity in rebellion against God. So our, uh, our beings, our whole nature set in opposition to what God wants. And so when Paul tells us not to live according to the flesh, he's saying don't give in to those desires that are shaped by your opposition, your sinful rejection of God. He says, live by the Spirit. Our flesh is that which is opposed to God. Ultimately, the issue is not the surface stuff like sexual immorality, but could be a whole lot of things. The issue is what is actually happening in the heart. The issue is actually what we actually love. Now I introduced you to this guy. Does anyone remember who this is? This is Augustine. Thank you very much. Augustine was a guy hanging around in North Africa uh, in about the 4th century. He was a pretty smart guy and he knew his Bible really well. And one of the things he pointed out, which I think is helpful, he said, ultimately, sin in our lives is all a matter of actually loving the wrong stuff. It's actually loving the wrong stuff too much. And the stuff that we should be loving, like carrots, not Snickers bars, we don't love enough. And when we think of sin like that, and when we think of these desires of the flesh, you can see that they might actually look quite respectable. So easy to conjure up, you know, those people have the desires of the flesh. I, I am not, I'm not into that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Augustine's saying it's when our loves are in the wrong place. It's like you can imagine being incredibly faithful, incredibly loving, incredibly supportive, incredibly just beautiful in your relationship with someone who is your mistress and not your wife. Someone could look at that relationship and go, wow. What a wonderful guy. 
But the issue is you're giving to someone who doesn't, who shouldn't be the object of your love, what belongs to another. Very respectable, very wow. So you can do the greatest acts of charity and service. But if you're not doing them for God and in light of God, it can be just as a desire of the flesh as surfing the internet and looking at pornography. You see that? The respectability is not there. It's where the heart is actually focused. And what actually happens, because the Bible teaches us until, until we come under Christ, till we come to him in faith, we live in the realm of the flesh. And what actually happens when we come to Christ is the victory that he won on the cross, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus that dealt with sin is applied in our hearts, in our lives. Some theologian, someone with a lot more brain than me, pointed it out, and I think very helpfully, sin's penalty is paid and sin's power is broken. You see these two things. It's not just that the debt has been paid, but its control over you is actually broken. So as Christians, we actually don't have to live according to the flesh. Charles Wesley wrote a great hymn. Some of you may know it. Oh, for a thousand tongues. Remember this? He says in one line, he says, he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the captive free. Wesley captured what conversion does as we actually come to Christ in faith. He breaks the power It has no control over us. We now live by the spirit in the realm of the spirit, not by the flesh. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the captive free. This is done through the perfect, finished work of Christ. The Bible talks about what happens at conversion in terms of a, a legal image called justification where Christ's perfect record is actually given to us. And we are acquitted on the basis of his performance. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, you are never more saved than when that first moment you come to Christ. You don't grow in your salvation in a way of you become more saved. You are always saved. You are in that category. You are justified. But there is another category that the Bible talks of as sanctification or growing in Christ-likeness. And that is a lifelong process that will continue until the day Christ comes back or we go to him. The victory we need to remember has been won by Jesus at the cross. The victory, the price has been paid, the power has been broken, but the Bible tells us that even for the Christian. Sin, the flesh, remains. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Middle of last century, there was a big war, yes? Second World War. If you're a student of this war, you'll know that the decisive turning point, the place where the battle was actually, you could say, the battle was won, the war was won, happened 
June 16, 1944. When the Allied forces landed at Normandy, D-Day, and began to wind back the Axis forces, the battles went on for the next year and a bit, up until 2nd of September, 1945. But from the moment the Allies landed and took Normandy, it was really a fait accompli. It was going to happen. It's the same in Christ. The battle has been won at the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The skirmishes will continue until he returns. And here Peter is saying, in light of that war that is going on, don't give in to the desires of the flesh. Don't fall in love with what they entice you with. J.C. Ryle Uh, An Anglican bishop of Liverpool a century or so ago said, A true Christian is known by this peace within, uh, a peace of conscience, and a war within. The battle rages, but the victory is sure. And Peter is saying, Don't give in. What's actually happening in our hearts when we face these struggles is this war. These two particular visions of the good life. These two particular promises, God's way and the world's way. And what Peter is saying is that when we're under pressure, we are being asked to choose. Which is the best way? And Peter says, don't give in to the vision that the flesh gives you. Don't choose that path. It is leading you up the garden path. It is promising you something it can never deliver. It is enticing us to build, to go back to last week's image, on another cornerstone, another foundation. And here, with this idea of fear, the desires of the flesh, they feed our fear. They cause us to question. They cause us to doubt. They make us afraid. Augustine again, he said, whether he will or not, a man is necessarily a slave to the things by which, by means of which he seeks to be happy. This is a really profound thing. You serve what you love, is what Augustine is saying. The thing that you think is going to bring you the good life, you are its slave whether that be God or something else. He follows them wheresoever they lead and fears anyone who seems to have the power to rob him of them. Fears. Fears the one who seems to have the power to rob him of them. The fear, the flesh stokes. If you lost this, life wouldn't be worth living. Surely, surely what God is offering does not compare to what you stand to lose. God cannot be trusted to deliver you. He hasn't got your back. And so these fears, they control us. And they distort us and they drag us away from that priestly calling. 
And we avoid, we retreat within ourselves and we don't want to get to know our neighbours and we hide the fact that we are Christians uh, from our work colleagues and from our community and our school and our friends at uni. We fly under the radar, we avoid or we attack. Well, Christian churches don't have many resources to attack anymore, do we? And so what we do is we just get together and we bitch about the world out there and how evil it is and we make ourselves feel good Or we assimilate and we become just like them. You too released an album a couple of years ago called uh, All the Things You Can't Leave Behind, I think it was called. No, 2000. Very insightful. One song called Peace on Earth. They say that what you mock will surely overtake you and you become a monster so the monster will not break you. Someone said, we have met the enemy and he is us. That's what Peter's saying. The issue is not out there. The issue is not the people who oppose us. The issue is our hearts and what we do and who we are tempted to love. That is the challenge. We are called by God to engage in the lives of those around us, that we might bless them for his glory. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify him on the day he visits. That's what we're called to, but our fear says, no, 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 no. You can't be trusted. Don't go there. Back off, just withdraw. Blend in, no one will notice. So how do we do it? Peter gives us in our second point, he gives us Christ as an example. To this you were called, he writes, because Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter says, if you want to know how to do this, look at Jesus. The actual word that he uses here for example is the word that was used to describe uh, trainee scribes would trace over letters, faint letters on a papyrus. I went to school old enough and I had books like this. Do you remember these? They were so much fun, weren't they? Um, But you'd learn to write by tracing over the letters. And that is the word. That's the idea. Jesus is the one whom we trace our lives over his life. And Peter says, he is our example and we follow in his footsteps. He did not withdraw. He remained engaged. He's on the front foot to bless. When he is attacked, he doesn't reply. He doesn't retaliate. He is free from fear that paralyzes. It doesn't mean that Jesus was never afraid. Look at Gethsemane. Father, if there is any other way. But fear does not control him. Fear does not paralyze him. This sacrificial love meant that Jesus engaged. And in verse 23, we read, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He knew that there was a verdict from the judge and that God would vindicate the innocent. 
So no matter what the world said of him, what, no matter what the world did to him, God would vindicate. God would set things straight. And through the resurrection, that is exactly what God has done. But there's a problem with Jesus as an example, isn't there? Because Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. But can we? Who of us are truly innocent? Even when we are unjustly on the receiving end, can we say that we are without sin? Maybe you are. But then maybe after the bad day at school or at uni or at work, you go home and you take it out on the family and the victim becomes the perpetrator. Who of us can say that we, we can trust that judgment because we are innocent? Christ could say that, but we cannot. But even if we could, there's another problem. Jesus, as an example, is just too big. Many of you will know I kind of like swimming. I swim down at Marion with um, Kyle Chalmers. This is uh, me and Kyle hanging out in the pool. Yeah. He actually does swim in the lane next to me. That is not me, by the way. Uh, but if I set Kyle Chalmers as my model, I just don't have what it takes, I'm afraid. He's about a third of my age. He's about six inches taller than me. He carries a little bit less of the insulation uh, that I carry. I just don't have what it takes. It's interesting, isn't it? Like gym memberships after the Olympics and after the Commonwealth Games, they boom because everyone's inspired by these examples, but they're then crushed by them. And a month later, they're not at the gym anymore. Jesus, as an example, if he is just an example, is too, too big. How can we do it? Where do we find the power? Brings us on to our last point. By ourselves, we can't. If we do it by the flesh, we can't. You simply cannot do it. Sin must be addressed. And so we have in 1 Peter 2.24 that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Christ paid the penalty. He broke the power so that we were no longer enslaved to sin. We no longer defaulted to the flesh every time and gave the love and the honour and the worship that belongs to God to everything else. We were set free. By his wounds, we are healed. Peter is reminding us here that it is not Jesus as great moral example only. It is Jesus as the sacrificial sacrifice, the substitute in our place, the one who bore our sins in his flesh on the tree. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. And so he answers those problems. 
Yes, I can't stand and appeal to God on the basis of my innocence. But I can on the basis of Christ's innocence, which comes to me through faith. By grace, through faith, I come to Christ and his merit, his perfection is mine. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, you can rest in the fact that God will vindicate you. Not because you've got it all together. Not because you do it right every time, but because Christ did. We can have confidence. We can have assurance. We, like the Lord Jesus, can entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Because, back earlier we saw in chapter 1, the ransom has been paid. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. We have been bought back, not with the coin of our life, but with the coin of his life. And so we can say that debt has been paid. I need not fear. I can entrust myself to the one who judges justly. It breaks that fear. God will vindicate But not only that, verse 25, we were like sheep going astray, Peter writes. He's quoting uh, Isaiah 53 here. But now we have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Jesus is not merely a sacrifice. Jesus rose again. Jesus dwells amongst his people by his spirit. We have not just come to put our faith in a fact. Jesus died and rose again. Through that fact, we have come to put our faith in a person. And not a person who's dead and gone, but a person who is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls now. The one who guards us, the one who guides us, the one who loves us and protects us. This is what Peter is saying. Christ is your example. You can engage in order to bless for God's glory. You can do that as Jesus did that because he has broken the power of cancelled sin. He has set the captive free. And he walks with us. And his spirit dwells in us. So that we can do as he has done. We have come to the good shepherd. John ten fourteen. Jesus says, I know my sheep. I know my sheep. He knows each and Every one of us. He actually knows us better than we know ourselves. If you ever find yourself saying, well, Jesus, you you just don't understand. Well, no, he does. Not only because he went through it himself, but because he himself is with us and in us and knows us. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So how do we do it? How do we engage 
with our workmates? How do we stay on the front foot in order to love, to bless, so that they might see our good deeds and bring glory to God on the day he visits us? Well, fear. Fear is associated with loss. Augustine tells us we fear those who we think can rob us. Rob us of the thing that gives us true meaning, true purpose, true happiness, a future, a hope. But what's Peter been telling us? No one can take that. No one can take that because Christ died and rose again. Maybe you fear your reputation. What will they say of me? It doesn't matter. What God says of you is what actually matters. And to him, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, God's treasured possession. Peter literally, in verse 11, addresses these people, not as dear friends, it's a bit lame. He calls them beloved. Not just beloved of him, but beloved of God. Okay, they trash your name, they trash your reputation, they talk us down. But we have someone who talks us up in eternity because of Christ. They threaten our future. Maybe your job prospects. Maybe your financial security. They threaten it. And we fear. No. How did 1 Peter start? Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Our relationship with God that he is our father and we are his children. Never be taken from us. It is kept for us. And Peter goes on and says that we are shielded through faith. We are kept for it. So why are we afraid? Nothing can touch us. They can't touch our name. That is secure in Christ. They can't touch our future. That is in Christ. They touch our lives. They touched Christ's life. But God vindicated the innocent. God raised Christ from the dead. And as he did for Christ, so he will do for us. Our freedom is found in Christ. He doesn't tell us that our fears are stupid, but he answers every one of them. The gospel in its riches addresses Every fear that we have so that we can, by his grace, depending on his spirit's power, we can live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Father, how you have blessed us. You have given us such a foundation under our feet in Christ that can never be shaken. 
You've given us such honor because your son was honored. He's honored. And one day will be honored by all. Father, ground us deep into that foundation. Let us draw upon the grace that is ours, that you have lavished upon us. And let that grace and that love answer the fear that the flesh wields against us. But let us wield the gospel by the spirit against that fear, against that flesh. Knowing its power has been broken as the penalty has been paid. And Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that sent Christ, that he did pay that penalty, that we might not live for sin, but for righteousness. And in his name we pray. Amen. Now, just quickly before I sit down and hand over to Hilary, who's going to lead us in a time of prayer, you'll notice I missed out massive slabs of that passage. That's why you've got to come back next week. Okay, the environment that we live this out, you will find unpacked. There's three categories he gives us. And as you, re- I encourage you to read it. Um, this is me getting a second sermon in here. No, not really. I'm going to sit down in a second. But he gives you three categories where power is the key thing. Slaves with masters. Citizens, particularly Christian citizens, under the emperor and under the governors. And non-Christian wives under husbands who in their day had an awful lot more power than husbands in our day have even though husbands have power in our day as well so read ahead through to verse 7 chapter 3 and think through it in terms of how does Peter use the gospel to encourage each of these places where Christians without power or with little power are called to bless those who have power and may be misusing that power. There's something for you. I'm going to hand over to Hilary now, who's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer.